Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And I'm the cabin boy. And joining us on Skype, I believe, is... Is Dr. Beach. Hey. <laughs> He's there. How are you, Dr. Beach? I'm very well up here in sunny Glasby. A little bit cloudy at the moment, but um, I think it's going to clear up later Oh, your line's kind of dropping in and out just a wee bit. Must be all that sunshine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so where are you up in Gladstone? Um, I'm just south of Gladstone in Tannum Sands, Northern Ooh. Ireland. Very nice. Yeah, sounds exotic. <laughs> it is. And um, so we kind of, you know, we found that we were starting to draw a bit of a Queen's birthday link for this weekend. I'm going to get into the program just a minute, actually, because, of course, I need to thank Tim Thorpe very much for Vital Bits from both this morning and yesterday morning as well. Wonderful, wonderful programming as always. Thank you, Tim. And uh, thank you, Andrew, for Soulful Bits, Edith for Things to Do Today and Lisa for the Rising Daily Diaries. Of course, as always, you can catch Tim next Saturday morning and Sunday morning for uh, for more Vital Bits. Um Thank you so much. Mean that from the uh, the bottom of my heart, as Tim knows. All right. He's looking at me. He's, he's packing away his records as we speak. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's he very is. busy. Um, on to today's program. It is Queen's birthday weekend and we sort of found a theme emerging in that you are in Queensland, Dr. Beach, and Rex is going to be in shortly to talk about the SS Queensland um, and uh, and doc, uh, Dr. Beach has got some Queensland Marine news and then we thought, yeah, that's probably enough. Reference. Enough Queen stuff. <laughs> enough yeah. Queen stuff. Um, we, uh, I'm going to go in order of the program. Um, Cabin Boy, you're going to talk to us about the humble shipping container. Yes, I am. Not only that you can live in them, but uh, every product you uh, buy or that has come somehow by a shipping container. So it's uh, an interesting history to the shipping container. Changed the world. Yeah. Mm. Um, Rex is going to be joining us, as I mentioned, to talk about the wreck of the SS Queensland, which is uh, sitting on the bottom of the sea off Wilson's Prom. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. No, I'm very excited for that. It's been there a very long time. It was sunk in 1876, I believe. Um, Rex can tell us all about that. We're going to be catching up with Dr. Elodie Campras to tell us the latest on the giant spider crabs. It's all due any day now. They're keeping us waiting, aren't they? Yeah, I'm actually <laughs> looking up to the sky each day. There's you know no clouds, having a look at the, the moon, thinking how big is that moon? We're getting close to the next full moon. Well, I've had a few people ask me, when are they coming? Almost that it's my fault that they're not there. <laughs> That's like, oh, I don't know. That's a bit rough, Cabin Boy. Um, and uh, Dr. Beach, you're going to be um, bringing us some news from Central Queensland. A foreign correspondence report from Central Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, a few th- about turtles, the wonderful things that are happening here um, with animal rescue, particularly around turtles and other initiatives. There was an EcoFest last weekend in Gladstone, just up the road. I went to, and yeah. Did a couple of quick interviews there, which I'm hoping will come across okay if when I play them from my phone directly <laughs> through radio. So, um, yeah. 
we'll give an update from, from the Gladstone, Boyne Island area. Excellent. We'll give it a crack as we always do. And then to close the show, we're going to actually jump from central Queensland to Western Australia. We're absolutely thrilled to be speaking with internationally acclaimed sailor, author and climate activist Lisa Blair. Um, we have lined up a conversation with Lisa Blair. Um, big thanks to Christine O'Neill, who is a listener to this program and Triple R subscriber, um, who brought uh, this to our attention. Um, Lisa was... Uh, profiled in mainstream news a few weeks ago. Um, she has sailed solo around Antarctica not once but twice, Cabin Boy. Have we got an hour because I have so <laughs> many questions. We'll have to make sure we keep to time. Um, she actually holds three world records. She's the founder of Climate Action Now. We'll talk to her about that as well. And, yeah, recently broke her own world record for solo circumnavigation of Antarctica. But not only that, the whole time she was travelling around Antarctica, she was collecting ocean health data to deepen our understanding of ocean health and global weather patterns. So, you know, one With of those. <laughs> and also she was dismastered on the first attempt. So there's yes. so much to ask. She's, yeah. she's gone back again. I so know. Amazing stuff. All right. it's uh, Let's have a look at the weather. Yep. Today, a bit of a cloud. There's a very high chance of rain, which I can attest to because it was raining as I came in. Uh, it's becoming less likely in the late evenings. Wind westerly 20 to 30 kilometres, turning southwesterly tomorrow uh, during the morning. And tomorrow, well, cloudy, high percent chance of showers, most likely in the morning and some light winds. If you're going diving, Port Phillip heads. The high tide is at 9.24, low tide 1.56am. Uh, and further on, 9.01pm tonight and then 2.21pm in the morning. No, in the night. In the afternoon. You know what I mean. <laughs> AM, PM. I'm used to the 24-hour clock. Yeah. yeah. I've got two super quick pieces of news and then we're going to go to shipping containers straight away if that's mm -hmm. okay. So first bit, um, you might have seen in the news this week, thanks to Harm who sent this to us via Facebook, uh, our messenger. Um, but, uh, yeah, amazing uh, report that came out of CSIRO this week. Plastic on Australia's beaches cut by almost a third. I did, heard that. Did you see this? Yeah. Yeah. So How? It's pretty cool. They've been doing surveys since 2013. And this is a study published in the journal One Earth. So building upon CSIRO's extensive Coastal litter surveys completed in 2013. I'm obviously reading from the press here. Including 563 new coastal surveys and interviews with waste managers across 32 local governments around Australia. So it's a pretty decent um, piece of uh, surveying work that they've done here. And what they did, they were looking to identify local government approaches that have been the most effective in reducing coastal, coastal plastics and identifying underlying behaviours that can lead to the greatest reduction in plastic pollution. So... Out of a 29% on average, 29% less plastic on beaches than in 2013 when similar surveys were conducted. So they compared the surveys. So that's the big hard plastic, not the little microplastics that are floating in the ocean? Uh, good question. It doesn't qualify here. Most it likely just the says big plastics. hard. Yeah, the Most, hard plastic. Yeah, that's it. So they were having a look at the, the, the various strategies that were considered to be the most effective. And uh, interestingly, retaining economic-based strategies across the six-year period had the biggest effect on reducing coastal litter. Mm -hmm, mm. So that, that was number one. Number two was increased in waste levies had the second largest effect on decreases in coastal plastic pollution. So local governments moving away from that collect and dump mindset to more of a sort and improve. Yep. So, of course, we have different coloured bins now than than we had back in 2013. So that's making a big difference. And the third thing was clean-up activities. So yeah. Clean Up Australia Day, big shout-out to beach patrol groups. We know many of you listen to this program as well. So part of that mix. So, yeah, really heartening Yeah, if you trends. see it, pick it up. Yeah. yeah. Don't leave it there. 
and uh, be mindful of where you put your plastic waste. All right, shipping containers. Which ties in nicely because we probably get most of our plastic waste via a shipping container somewhere or other. But if you're sipping on a coffee or eating fruit or if you've bought anything in the shops in the last whenever, there's a 100% guarantee that's come. It's been loaded on a ship in a faraway land and come across an ocean to uh, to your house. Now, over 90% of the world's goods are transported by sea in the humble shipping container. And we take it for granted. I mean, there are millions out there. The shipping container, it's an intermodal freight transport system. It was revolutionary because that means they can pick it up, put it on a ship, then pick it up again, put it on a train, put it on a truck, and they don't have to unload anything whatsoever. Um, Before we had shipping containers, this was back into the days of... It kind of killed um, sail too because in the sailing ships and all that, they used to use a system called brake bulk cargo system so they'd have to load everything individually you'll often see it in the movies where they're um they're at the shipping dock and they're loading it on with a net and that and you know mm. suddenly the net breaks and the barrel of whiskey's rolling down so it took a lot of manpower to load everything individually into the hold of the ship and there was often a lot of wastage too because things would spoil things would shift around because they weren't loaded properly so It took a lot of manpower and it was very labour intensive and the shipping executives and companies didn't like this because the ships would be at the dock a very long time and if they were at the dock and they weren't sailing, it was causing a lot of money, wasting a lot of money. But come World War II, and we always get things out of of wars, don't we, that kind of we take for granted. in a positive aspect, we've got something good because US military, US military started exploring the use of small containers to transport guns, bombs and other equipment more efficiently rather than just loading them on. But it wasn't until the 1950s that the American Malcolm McLean created the standard shipping container that's still used today. So what he created was a standard size that's used across the world, unlike your um, USB or your charger for your phone. Mm. Um, and he just kind of made it like a Lego brick. So it was a standard thing and they all clicked together so they could lock in together. Now, the most common container is the 20-foot equivalent container unit or a TEU. So if you're talking to a dockside worker, just throw in, oh, yeah, how's the TEUs going <laughs> or something? But the container meant that the goods only had to be handled once as the, you know, as it as I said, it's intermodal. It could be moved from ship to train to road. And in 1956, the cost to load by break bulk cargo, that's individually, was $5.86 per tonne. Once the container was put in, it was 16 cents per tonne. So imagine the savings for that. Mm. The negativity, the negative aspect was that was thousands of dockside workers lost their jobs. Yeah, right. So in the 1956, imagine that, like dockside worker. That was a bit of a revolution there. Like they were all losing their jobs. Well, 10 years after the war as well. Yeah. Yep. And all these shipping companies are reaping the benefits of it. So... Now, the, um, just some, well, the standardisation of container size led to a surge in shipping size. So in the last 20 years, ships have doubled in size. So there's some massive ships out there. And the largest ships capable of carrying 24,000 containers. Now, um doesn't seem much, but if you put them on a train, that's a train over 70 kilometres long. Yeah. Wow. So that kind of puts it into perspective there. And... Um, 
as I said, we take the shipping container and all that system for granted until the ever uh, ever given got lodged in the Suez Canal. Yes. And then we started there. We were, you know, we couldn't get deliveries of this and there was millions of dollars lost and it was kinds of, yeah. So it's very important, the shipping container. And uh, at the moment, there's over 17 million shipping containers in circulation globally. Uh, approximately 675 shipping containers are lost at sea annually. I think that you fudged that number because I think a lot more are washed overboard. Mm. And that is a danger for yachting too because they sit just below the surface and you can't see them. And often, you know, like um, your hair of a yacht kind of lost its keel or just sunk at sea, they could have ran into a shipping container. So it is a huge problem. They were supposed to put in a little valve that – because it's all sealed and protected, so they'll they'll float for – months and that but they've put in a safety valve that after a time it'll let water in and let the container sink but you still it's all always a fear for people are sailing in crossing oceans that they're going to run into a shipping container and of course shanghai is the busiest port running about three 33 million containers per year so um the humble shipping container you may have one in the back shed you may be actually living in one but I guarantee you anything you have bought from a shop has come via a shipping container. Amazing, Captain Boy. Incredible the design hasn't changed in 70 years. Well, it's just amazing that the whole world has agreed on that standard size yeah. size because, it, you know, what else do we agree on? Nothing. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> and it also worked in Australia in the early um, years because our between the states, the gauge of the railway was different. Yeah. So what would happen with the shipping containers, that helped a lot because they got to the border and they just – offloaded the uh, containers onto the other uh, to the next bigger gauge so that saved some of the uh, state governments a bit of money there until we standardized it yep thanks Kevin boy pleasure amazing it is 919 coming up to 920 you're listening to radio marinara on 3 triple r without further ado good morning Rex hunter <laughs> Good morning, crew. Good morning. <laughs> hey, scabby crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can take the helm. Oh, thanks very much. SS Queensland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking, celebrating all things royal for Lizzie this weekend. So <laughs> we're talking about the wreck of the SS Queensland. So that was um, a steamer. It was built in 1875 in the UK and then proceeded to uh, go up to China to uh, collect tea and bring bring it back to Melbourne. So... It delivered to Melbourne 2,500 2, tonnes of tea in one one go, which was approximate value these days of $30 million. Wow. So How many shipping containers is that? That's, yeah. <laughs> I did the figures, and I think I came up with four. Okay. <laughs> Just a rough guess. So um, this was state-of-the-art ship. It was like the Titanic. It was... Uh, unsinkable, double bottom. <laughs> you never say a ship's unsinkable, do you? It's like you're tempting fate. It's tempting fate. Oh, you know, modern pumps. I think they even had electricity on it. So that uh, after it discharged its cargo in Melbourne, it was heading out in ballast back to Sydney and then heading back to Fu Chow to pick up more tea. Uh, so you look at the steamers and they're, they're amazing because um, clipper ships would have done the, the tea void previously and that would have taken over a month. It only took uh, 19 days to get from China to Melbourne with wow. technology. Know, $30 million mm. dollars worth of uh, tea. I don't know whether there was any Earl Grey in there because I do like Earl Grey. <laughs> <laughs> so after it discharged, it was a record turnaround time and then started heading out on the 2nd of August, 1876. 
uh, past the Shank, got past the Prom, past Rondondo, and then started heading northeast. And it was about four, four in the morning, and um, a ship called the Barrable, which is about hundred, hundred, well, thirty meters shorter than the Queensland, because the Queensland was, yeah, over hundred meters long. It was mm. a big, big vessel, big steamship. Uh, they saw each other. The uh, Barrable was coming from Sydney. The um, Queensland heading northeast. And then at the last moment, for some reason, the Barrable decided to turn port at its helm, straight in the side of the Queensland. Wow. So the uns- surprisingly, the unsinkable ship sank. And what about the Barrable? Did that sink as well? No, surprisingly, right. the smaller vessel had its bow stove in and lost virtually the front of it. And that took the survivors off the um, Queensland and brought them back to Melbourne. Right. So, uh, and 45, took 45 minutes for the vessel to sink and then it just sank to be gone for years and years and years until World War Two. When the corvettes were working up and down the coast of uh, Australia, looking for Japanese sub- Japanese and German submarines, dropped a few depth charges on it. So this the attacks went into the historic record of where the, where it sank, and so a lot of research between a guy called Greg Greg Hodge and myself, and um, he had one position, I had another. Greg was spot on. I was a, a few a few a few kilometres out. <laughs> <laughs> so we. Uh, we went, the group called, well, it was a group of friends we used to get together because we wanted to find deep water shipwrecks back in the early 2000s because none of the, the big ones had been found off the Victorian coast. So if we found the 7,000 tonne Kanauna a couple of months before and then we went out in June, yeah, there you go, June, June um, 2005 with a magnetometer, started mowing the lawns and found her. So she sits in over over 60 metres of water, really, really, you know, pretty, quite deep. Um, but pretty well, all the sterns dropped off, but the bow, the clipper bow, because it's built with a clipper bow, sort of lying on its side, stood, stood up, you know, five, six metres off the bottom, massive big steam engine. It's just like a, it's just got like going to a fish farm. There's that many fish on the, it's a yeah, supermarket. Wow. So it's like a, a, a reef for it's, the fish, yeah. It's an oasis. Presumably the tea was all gone. <laughs> and it's a supermarket for sharks as well. Yeah, because right. We dived the site one time and uh, it's just, you do the, do these dives and then you do floating decompression or decompression stops. So you go, you know, first... You do multiple de- yeah, you decompression stops. Yeah, do a minute of 30, 30 metres and you come up another five metres and do another minute and eventually work your way up. And you were saying 60 metres of water. Yeah, over wow. 60 metres. And we are decompressing. Uh, the seals are swimming around us, you know, biting our fins and having a good old time. Oh, how are you? Uh, not bad. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the seals disappeared. <gasps> and we looked below and the guys decompressing below us, about 15 metres below us, were just like... Yeah. And then they said about 15 metres below them, they saw the biggest shark you've ever seen in your life. Oh, really? Yeah. Any shark that depth do, is do, the do, biggest. Do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah. Well, the seals disappearing is a big kill, yeah. isn't it, really? They know what's going on. So, yeah, it's uh, protected under the Historic Shipwrecks Act. There's only a few of us that know the position because we don't want to give it out because it'll be raided and uh, robbed like the alert was off Cape Shank. So um, just a few of us know the position. But yeah. absolutely amazing dive and amazing to see, you know, so much of a ship, big ship down there. Relatively protected 60 metres down off the prom, it's yeah. not going to be the easiest of diving conditions anyway. But yeah, I yeah, it's, it's it's hard to get to. I mean, 
and if the weather blows up, it's a rotten trip back, I can tell yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> so under the protection, is anyone allowed to dive on it? Uh, they could, if they, if they could, if, yeah. You can dive on it. But you, you just can't take anything. Yeah, you're yeah. Not, not allowed to take anything. And we don't want to give the position out yeah. it's just too critical, the, you know, rare shipwrecks like that. Well, yeah. I'll just cross out this longitude and latitude <laughs> that I've got here. <laughs> yeah, did I? I'll take yeah. my notes. Sorry. Anything else on the Queensland? Uh, it's, yeah, it's deep. Yeah, yeah, amazing. <laughs> and just fish. Uh, yeah, it, it's in the shipping lane, surprisingly, because ships... Ships still pass over the top of oh, it. Oh, wow. We've been out there and there's been a, like, you know, a, a container ship, one of your favourites. Oh, no, no, a favourite of mine. <laughs> Just go steaming right past us. Yeah. What's coming up for you in the next few weeks, Rex? Uh, well, well, we were, got a wreck we've discovered off Queensliff uh, in the Sippins Channel. We've got to get back to there and try and identify what that is. Uh, I've got more work to do on the Tommy Dodd off uh, St Leonard, so um, we want to run it run a mag over the top of that and get some sandings and do some surveying as well. So uh, full dance card. Yeah, very good. All right, we'll catch up with you in a few weeks. And okay. Report back. Oh, give you the latest. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rex. Okay. Rex Hunter there talking about the SS Queensland. Oh, yeah, where are the spider crabs? Dr. Elodie Campras, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Yeah, good, and you? Yeah, well, thank you. Okay, we're we're inching closer to that strawberry moon, that first full moon in June. Uh, ha- what have the sightings been like over the last week? Yeah, so we're not much over the last week, but we're just starting this weekend to see some activity again on the Bellarine. There's been a little bit of activity uh, on the Mornington Peninsula, but not not necessarily an aggregation they, they could be nearby but um groups of small groups of crabs at the moment so yeah let's see what happens over yeah. the next uh days leading to the full moon yeah they're uh, they're, they're certainly uh, keeping us guessing this year which is <laughs> is fascinating and you know unlike last year where they just sort of didn't really turn, seem to turn up at all but having these little sightings here and there so yeah really looking forward to next week's update and um yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about yep. was that there is a newsletter that our listeners can sign up to. What's this one all about? Yeah, so um, we're creating a bit of research updates, so we're sending that um, whenever we have some, some things to talk about, some development. So um, I did send the last one last week on World Oceans Day, and that was to um, show everyone the footage from the, the uh, spider cram cam. On the on the piers on the peninsula, um, so yeah, people can sign up and and get the latest updates, and we'll keep people telling what's happening, and uh, also yeah, provide some results when when the research progresses. What's the best thing for people to do, Elodie, if they want to sign up for the newsletter? Yep. So um, go to the Spider Crab Watch iNaturalist project. And then uh, scroll down to the area under the map and it says sign up for updates and there's a, a link there and all that people need to provide is, is their name and their, their contact, their email address and then that's it. And through iNaturalist this week, what have uh, the reports been like? Are you getting people sort of sending sightings through? And you're interested in non-sightings yeah, too, they, aren't you? Sorry. <laughs> you, you're interested in non-sightings too? Yes, as well. So this is because we're interested in picking up um, a change in the environment that might, um, you know, foster spider crabs coming together. 
So it's interesting for us, for example, we know temperatures 14 degrees, no sighting, no sighting, no sighting, and then temperature drops, then we have sighting. Yeah. So, yeah, if people go for a dive or a snorkel and they don't, do, and they don't see spider crabs, they can still log a sighting. It really only takes a few minutes to put the date, time, location, and uh, and just say that they haven't seen spider crabs, and that's also very good information. Yep. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, just repeating that again, iNaturalist, go to iNaturalist. If you do a quick search for spider crabs, it's pretty easy to find. We've already put a link to that on our Facebook page and we'll do so again. So thanks so much, Elodie. Always a pleasure. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed for um, some exciting news about um, the anticipated spider crab aggregation for 2022. For sure, yeah. Looking forward to coming on again. Yeah, always a pleasure for us too. Okay, thanks, Elodie. We'll catch you next week. Cheers, see ya. Bye, bye for now. Dr. Elodie Campras from Deakin University, where are the giant spider crabs? Cabin boy, Dr. Beach, hopefully they're coming soon. Well, I suppose also, no, not too many people are diving now with this weather. The cold front's come through for the last two weeks, so maybe they're out there and we just haven't spotted them yet. Yeah, I love that. Mm. Elusive. Yeah, hide and seek. Uh, We're going to cross back now to central Queensland to catch up with Dr. Beach, who is uh, up there reporting on all things, uh, I don't know, what are you talking to us about, Dr. Beach? (laughs) (laughs) You didn't actually tell me much in your your text messages, so what are we covering today? No, I thought I'd keep it a bit cryptic. Uh, Well, just Gladstone. Gladstone is a, not just Gladstone, but the beautiful area around here in central Queensland, so you can think of it as the gateway to the southern reef. Some people who have been up to Heron Island might have been through Gladstone. I'm actually staying Bron and Cabin Boy um, with family, a little bit south of Gladstone in the Boyne Island Tannum Sands region. Been up here a couple of weeks, heading back tomorrow. I'll be back in time for the Community Cup to um, to see you, Cabin Boy, next week. Oh, well, I'll hear you cheering for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a great time up here. The weather's been beautiful, I'm sorry to tell you. Um, lovely sunshine. Done a bit of canoeing in the Boyne River. Did that yesterday with a family friend. It was lovely. Saw some sea eagles, kingfishers, hoping to see a green turtle or two because they often come in um, and lay their eggs in that region. Um, didn't see any, but unfortunately, lots of green turtles. And this is one of the examples of the things I want to talk about lots of green turtles um, and some of the other turtles that you occasionally see around here, like loggerheads. Um, Bit of a problem with them, lock it um, injured by boats, propellers, um, also plastics in their guts, plastic um, entanglements. There's a really wonderful group of people who are up a little bit further north in Gladstone. So Gladstone's only about 15 uh, miles north of here or kilometres, listen to me, miles. Um, really great group up there, which is called the um, the Coin Island Re- Turtle Rehabilitation Centre. Spoke to a couple of people there. Coin Island, spelt Q-U-O-I-N, if anyone wants to look it up. In fact, they've got a... Um, and Coin Island is a tiny island off Gladstone, well, in Gladstone Harbour, really. And um, there's people there that are doing a wonderful job, all self-funded, volunteer money, money that's donated to them, rehabilitating turtles and releasing them back into the wild. In fact, there were two yesterday that were released in the Boyne River down here. Um, that was a very nice thing to see those after they've been rehabilitated. But, yeah, Gladstone, we're talking, yeah, just a bit about Gladstone. It's one of the, um, we're talking about shipping this morning, and I thought that was, um, yeah, quite nice hearing hearing about the shipping containers, Cabin Boy, and also the the Queensland from from Rex. Uh, But, yeah, Gladstone is a very deep um, natural harbour. It was um, Matthew Flinders first sighted it. Um, It is the home, the traditional home of the Balai, the Gurang, the Gurang Gurang people, and also the Tarabalang Bunda nations, um, 
Oh, and just an aside, I actually saw a midden the other day on the side of the Boyne River um, where people have been sitting there for several hundred years shucking oysters and eating them. That was quite amazing. amazing. Um, lots, of, lots of people here working for the various different industries that are here. As I said, there's a um, very deep water natural harbour, so we, um, and that's called Port Curtis, uh, named by Matthew Flinders. So for about 50 or 60 years, and they started doing this 70 or 80 years ago as well, um, realised that this would be a hub for, for shipping stuff out that we like to dig up like coal and also for bringing bauxite in from places like Weeper up north. Consequently, there's a whole set of industries here. There's an aluminium smelter, coal export, there's now LNG plant as well. Many people that work in the local area, uh, that live in the local area, work for these industries, but they also spend a lot of recreational time out on the water. So, of course... Many of them, as you would imagine, are very concerned about the environment, concerned about the water quality that there is in Gladstone Harbour, concerned about the turtles and all of those things. Um, last week, I went to, to EcoFest, I think I mentioned earlier on, which was up in Gladstone. That was a really lovely um, chance for me. It was at the, um, the local botanic gardens, the Tondoon Botanic Gardens in Gladstone. Really nice chance for somebody like me to to get a snapshot of what's been happening in the area and also for the locals to get there and to um, you know, get information on microbats, gardens, all of that sort of stuff. But as you might imagine, quite a lot of marine information. I'm going to quickly, because I know I've only got a couple of minutes left, I'm just going to play <laughs> one of the, um, of the snippets that I had. This is interviewing a guy called Carl French, who's from the Port Curtis Harbour Watch. And I think just before we go, Bron, this is a really nice um, indication of the kinds of things that are happening up here. G'day, my name's Carl French. I'm the project officer for Port Curtis Harbour Watch and I run a citizen science and schools based uh, water quality monitoring program. So um, we've got some pretty cool scientific gear, some pretty expensive equipment. I, I can see those microscopes here and these kids are loving it, aren't they? All these pictures of these bugs and midges and things. The great thing with water bugs is they provide you with a real um, hands on. Um, educational opportunity. You know, kids can grab a net, they can go down to the creek, they can have a dip in the water, they pull some bugs out, look at them down under the microscope. You're going to get some kids that just don't want to leave the nets, they'll be happy fishing the whole morning. You'll get other kids that just itching to look down the microscope. And then we've got apps on the iPads which actually allow them to identify what they found and then they can, you know, you get some kids that are really into that too. So. Right, I'm going to stop that there because I know we're running out of time. But, yeah, that was a really good example of some of the stuff that's happening here. There's also a lot of work being done by Central Queensland University who have a campus here. Um, seagrass regeneration, collecting, getting people to collect seagrass seeds and then to make seagrass balls. And then they give those seagrass balls to fishermen to then chuck off the sides of their boats to encourage the seagrass to come back. Um, yeah, it's been a fun time. Um, lots of interesting things happening up here from central Queensland. So, yeah, that's my contribution to the Queen for her... <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks, Dr Beach. And, um, yeah, putting the GLAD into Gladstone and looking forward to hearing more of that because I know you've got some more recordings, um, which we haven't quite got time to play today, but when you're back in a couple of weeks, it uh, be great to hear them then. Uh, that's right. And just, to, yeah, the local's called Gladstone Happy Rock. I thought you might like to know. <laughs> Happy Rock. That's great. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, safe travels and we'll catch you in a couple of weeks. We have to jump off now. Um, uh, would you uh, care to say goodbye? Uh, yeah, goodbye. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll see you, um, see you in a couple of weeks, bro. Excellent. Safe trip. Safe trip. Thanks, Dr. Beach. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
the reason Dr. Beach has to jump off is because we're going to shortly cross via Zoom, so different medium and uh, and from there or different platform from there need to um, to free up the line. Uh, shortly going to be speaking with Lisa Blair. And if you've been following mainstream news, uh, you would have or just even heard the start of this program. Lisa has recently uh, uh, broken the world record for speed of circumnavigating Antarctica. And she has that's just the beginning of all the amazing things that she's done. So we're going to hear a couple of station announcements. And then maybe while we line up, Lisa, a little tiny bit of music as well. And uh, shortly we will be speaking with Lisa Blair. Yeah, Triple R is where you are, where the time is coming up to 10 minutes to 10. Now, the magnificent Southern Ocean is known for its unrelenting storms, giant waves, snow and ice and latitudes with names like the Roaring 40s, the Furious 50s and the Screaming 60s. If there was an extreme sport version of sailing, this would be it. So you'll probably understand and possibly share our reaction, being that it blew our tiny minds when we learned a couple of weeks ago that Australian solo sailor Lisa Blair recently broke the world record for the fastest unassisted voice sailing through the Southern Ocean to circumnavigate Antarctica, arriving safely back in Albany three weeks ago on May 25. Not only that, it's the second time she's done it. Lisa is also the founder of the movement Climate Change Now. She's a published author, the subject of a National Geographic documentary, and this is just the tip of the iceberg of what she's done. To find out more, it's with great pleasure. We cross now to Western Australia to speak with Lisa Blair. Good morning, Lisa. Welcome to Triple R and to Radio Marinara. Morning. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's great to have you with us. And a uh, big shout out to Christine O'Neill, who listens to this program, subscribes to this station for pointing us in your direction. Um, first, congratulations. I'm not kidding. What you've done has just blown our minds here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite a wild adventure, that's for sure. <laughs> um, we're, what we're just about to talk about is a world record that you've just broken. But I read that you've got three world records. What are the other two for? Yeah, so I set um, the world record sailing solo, nonstop and unassisted around Australia as the fastest monohull and the first woman to do it. And uh, and then I also set a record in the 2017 Antarctica trip uh, as the first woman to sail around Antarctica solo with one stop, um, which is a record I recently just broke with this trip. <laughs> Um, I've got Cabin Boy with us as well. Cabin Boy is our, our in-house, in-program sailing uh, correspondent and expert, so feel free to jump in at any point, Cabin Boy. Well, I, I'm just amazed that that it's a world record, not that, you know, like you've sailed around Antarctica. That is a, amazing in itself, but it's also <laughs> a world record. Yeah, so um, a Russian sailor, Fedor Konyakov, in 2008, um, basically he set the world record racing on the Antarctica Cup Ocean Racetrack. And he did the trip in 102 days. So uh, I attempted the record in 2017 and unfortunately dismastered. And so this record was a, a second go at that, um, which, you know, does make me have a few screws loose, I guess, because it is the Southern Ocean <laughs> solo twice. <laughs> I agree. Tell us a little bit about your boat then. What was your, you know, how big and what was it made of? Yeah, so she's called Climate Action Now, which is part of that movement that I put together. Mm -hmm. um, she is 50 foot long. She's fiberglass. Um, but one of the unique things about the boat is she's broken up into little compartments. So from the boat perspective, she's got seven watertight compartments throughout the whole boat. So that means that, you know, if I hit an iceberg or a submerged um, shipping container or debris in the ocean, um, I've got less likely chance of actually completely sinking. Don't so, say unsinkable. Uh, give me a little bit of peace of mind out there. Yeah, don't say unsinkable. We know where that goes. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially around icebergs. Yes. <laughs> um, I also read that 
uh, this is from your your own website that you've sailed over eighty thousand nautical miles. Wow! Um, but that was before this voyage. So what are you up to now? Uh, about ninety five, almost a hundred thousand wow. nautical miles. Um, which means you can get a, I think it's a swallow tattoo or something um, in traditional sailing yes. history when you clock a hundred thousand nautical miles. So yeah, might have to add that to the repertoire. Do you ever get your land legs back? Um, yes, because normally I have almost like a year between projects because there's a huge amount of planning and preparation that actually goes into making these trips a success. So I spend over a year trying to raise the sponsorship, prepare the boat, and then I go out and I'm doing like two or three months of ocean sailing for a record. And then I come back and I have like that year to kind of, I guess, reflect, rebuild and, and get the next project together. So, yeah, I do. But uh, normally it takes a couple of months, definitely, after a project to kind of get back to real world lifestyle. <laughs> um, now, Lisa, I believe you were late into sailing and started at the age of 25. What got you into it? Yes, definitely. So I randomly got a job in the Whip Sundays as the cook and the cleaner on a party yacht. <laughs> so my glorious entry into sailing was scrubbing toilets and cooking for 35 passengers on a charter boat. So I just um, love the lifestyle. I love the adventure aspect of it and um yeah and i just wanted to do more and it's a long uh, way from the wit sundays down to antarctica yes. so can you talk us through that because it was um 12 years ago that you kind of first got into this or maybe 13 but anyway but how, how do you go from sailing around the wit sundays where i imagine things are a little bit cruisier than suddenly in the southern ocean like where, what was that journey yeah, so about a year or so after doing work in the Whit Sundays, I saw this yacht race that was called the Clipper Around the World Yacht Race. Mm -hmm. And basically it's this amateur yacht race. You pay a birth fee, you sign up, and you race each other around the planet. And I just thought that would be an epic adventure. So I decided to sign up. I spent a year fundraising and sponsorship seeking and trying to pull a campaign together. Didn't know what I, I was doing at all. Um, I rented a book from the library on sports marketing, and that's kind of how I learned that there was this thing <laughs> called proposals that you were supposed to put together, um, and then raced around the world. And I just I came back from that experience with experience in ocean sailing and enough knowledge to kind of become a commercial skipper and then I just wanted to keep following pathways and I thought, how do you make it harder than racing around the world with a crew of 16 people? Do it on your own. <laughs> um, so I sort of went into solo sailing from there and, and that led to me building up to Antarctica, yeah. Um, how do you prepare for a, a solo voyage around Antarctica? I think that's probably one question that most people listening will be thinking right now. Like how do you prepare for three months at sea and not just three months at sea but three months, you know, heading down south and, you know, having to deal with really extreme weather conditions. How do you prepare for something like that? Yeah, good question. Um, preparation is actually like the make or break of a record like this. And given that last time I dismastered and very nearly died in the Southern Ocean and I was, you know, very fortunate to hit dry land again after the uh, attempt in 2017, I was, I guess, overcautious with my preparations. So, um, which is not a bad problem to have, but we did go and put the boat through a six month refit. So we basically replaced everything that was replaceable on board the boat and upgraded her and um, made sure the hull and decks and everything was as strong and as solid as we could possibly make it for the impacts. Like, You've got to imagine that you're going to go down and you're sailing in the storm the size of like a hurricane or a cyclone on pretty well a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And then you add to that freezing temperatures. So the boat preparation was huge to the success of the project. And then there's the mental aspect that you've got to prepare for and being isolated at sea and 
And the only way I could do that was, you know, through my previous experiences. And then obviously, like I do a lot of visualization, I try and put myself in the experience that I may or may not face down in the Southern Ocean and, and sort of try and go through that thought process of, okay, what would I do if this happens? Or what would I do if that happens? And then at least that way, when I, something does happen, um, I've at least already thought it through and have like contingencies or action plans in mind on how I would deal with an emergency or, you know, discomfort or freezing cold temperatures, um, you know, while I'm sailing around Antarctica. But th- when you're there by yourself, you're in the Southern Ocean, you are a tiny, tiny little speck in, how do you cope with that? Because you, there's no, you're on your own. There's no chance of rescue really, is there? Well, there, maybe. Yeah, basically no chance of rescue. Yeah. Um, so when I dismastered, I, the closest ship to me was 600 nautical miles away. And if I had lost the boat and had to abandon to a life raft, I was in 10 meters breaking yeah. seas. Recording in progress. Zero temperatures. So it's not going to be um, possible to actually have rescue arrive in time in those environments. So you do have to plan for all of those eventualities, which means that you have to set the boat up to be able to self-rescue in all of those scenarios. But yeah, there's something quite uh, unique about being in the eye of a storm and it's so strong and the winds are so ferocious on deck that you can't actually breathe facing into the wind you have to turn your head around and cup your mouth to get a breath breath of fresh air and and then you have these waves that are like the size of like a five-story building and they're breaking and they kind of hit the hull of the boat and like pick you up and throw you um so yeah it's it's a marvel to witness it's terrifying as well but i would sit there and i would just be in awe of the fact that i'm surviving in that condition and that the boat's strong enough to get me through and um you know, and you get so close to Mother Nature in that environment because you're you you can't conquer it. You've got to kind of yeah. move with it and, and move with the flows and the rhythms of the earth. And um, so, yeah, it's an incredibly special journey to go on. Lisa, we've only got a minute or so left. I did want to ask you about the citizen science work that you were doing, you know, while you were yes. sailing around Antarctica, you're collecting data the whole time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so obviously the campaign I've been running for the last um, seven years is called Climate Action Now, and that's a community-driven awareness campaign where I collect post-it notes. Um, So the hull of the boat is wrapped in thousands of post-it notes. Anyone looking at a photo can check that out. Um, And the goal of that campaign is to show people that as an individual, we have the power to create change. But given how remote Antarctica is, I really wanted to just step it up another notch. So I ended up partnering with a number of scientific organizations globally, and I collected over 180 microplastic samples. We did ocean health monitoring the entire way around. So I've got a log of, you know, is the Southern Ocean in a good state or a bad state for the entire duration of the record? Um, Then we also deployed um, weather drifter boys for the Bureau of Meteorology. Argo research flow took place in, um, you know, the Seabed 2030 research program, which is uh, logging your depth. and just basically turned the boat into a mobile weather station as well and and interacted with our science community as much as I could to make sure that the data I was able to collect from the Southern Ocean was not only unique and valuable, but it was actually going to be useful in research papers and and scientific um, sort of processes moving forward. So, yeah, it's been hugely successful, which is fantastic. Fantastic. Lisa, we are out of time. I could talk to you for at least another half an hour. Maybe we'll try (laughs) and line up another time to talk about that and climate action now as well. But, um, yeah, for now, thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing speaking with you. Congratulations again on your world record. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure. We'll catch up with you again. 
Bye for now. Lisa Blair there. And uh, thanks to also Dr. Beach. Thank you, Cabin Boy. Thank you, Rex Hunter, as well as well as Kent. And stay tuned for Radiotherapy with Panel Beater, Dr. Nick and Prudence Deer. With apologies to them, we've run into their time. Catch you next week for more Marinara. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.